I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader. And we are here to discuss Daphne de Maurier's novel, Rebecca. We are here to discuss chapters 8 through 14 of this very gothic novel. Is this the gothiest, gothiciest of gothic novels? Or is it like mid-second tier gothiciest? Can I just say gothiest? Heidi because gothiest is easier gothiest. to say than gothiciest. Gothiciest yes, sounds like a disease you get in a desert. Mm. One or that you don't wi- want. Or on a windswept moor. Mm. I was going to say, you got to be on the moors yeah. for, for, to catch the gothiciest. <laughs> Let's just use gothiest. 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 Heidi, is this the gothiest what, what book tier of the gothy of, books yeah, that you've read? What tier of gothy books are, <laughs> of gothic books? I think it's this? in the top tier, but it's not the gothiest. Okay. What's the gthiest? I think it's Wuthering Heights. Oh. Well, it's I've called Wuthering, Wuthering Heights. Heights. So it's about Wuthering on Heights. And I'm oh, like my. crazy about Wuthering Heights. And I know that's like a weirdo thing. There's always, I, always controversy about this particular mm. novel. Most, mm. most people I know like hate that novel. <laughs> I love Wuthering Heights. So I, I mean, you, if there's like a continuum of Gothic, you may push me right over the edge and I will fall into the abyss being like, I loved that book. You'll be at the, so, you'll be at the highest peak of the old mansion. I'm with, all about it. The, the most old... melodramatic twisted love <laughs> that takes place in the darkest part of the night in the weirdest old medieval castle. I'm totally for it. Okay. So this is like maybe top level, but like somewhere below Wuthering Heights and well, we're going to read Jane Eyre next, so we can talk about that. And, yes. Does this, and I'm is not this like ranking it according to greatness? The no, question, no, 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 no. was gothiest. Right, right. We under, yeah, we understand. Yeah. Well, so, I just want to make sure our listeners understand. So yes, wise, I, wise to clarify before they come after you. It's right. Right. <laughs> so uh, we are here, as I said, to discuss chapters eight through fourteen of this top tier gothic novel, and at least in terms of its gothic qualities. Before we do that, though, I want to remind you about a new series of books that B&H Publishing is releasing. It's Karen Swallow Pryor's series of, of editions on classic works of literature. So bringing the best of the classics, we have an... <clears throat> Sorry. I, I started David, getting excited. Are you getting emotional about this, <laughs> this ad? It's very special. He's yeah, feeling no. gothy. <laughs> I, I, started, yeah. I started trying to say something and then realized that if I kept going, it was going to be like, air bubbles or something. I don't, I don't know who knows what was going to come out. I knew it wasn't going to be words though. So I had to pause and we could take this out. I mean, I know Logan is not going to take this out, but in another podcast, we would take this out. But let me start that over again. Bringing the best of the classics, award-winning English professor and author, Karen Swallow Pryor, friend of the show, provides insightful introductions and reading tips that help you read through the lens of the gospel. So the series includes Jane Eyre, which is the book we're going to talk about next. That one's coming out this March. Frankenstein, we talked with her about that last year. Heart of Darkness and Sense and Sensibility, with more coming next year. You could pick up these beautifully designed classics today. And you can reread these literary masterpieces with a faithful guide who has spent a lot of time studying them. If you would like to learn more about this series, you can head over to bhpublishinggroup.com slash classics. So that's bhpublishinggroup.com 
com slash classics. And we are very much looking forward to talking about Jane Eyre with Karen on our very next book uh, here on the podcast. And we're going to be using her edition. Now you can use whatever edition you want, but here on the show, we are going to use her edition. I believe it releases March 9th. You can pre-order that now. You can do that through your local bookstore. You can do it through bookshop.org, such as bookshop.org for a little bookshop that you may know something about called Goldberry Books, or, you know, you can buy it through other sorts. More mundane means. Thank you. That's the nicer way of saying mm. the, the behemoths, mm-hmm. um, which is a very gothic way of putting it, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So anyway, thank you so much to BNH Publishing for helping sponsor the show. And thank you to Karen Swallow Pryor for delivering to the world these beautiful editions. Um, they look good on a shelf and they read really well. So uh, check those out. Okay, let's talk about Rebecca. Mm-hmm. Although we also should talk a little bit about our unnamed narrator because I have lots of questions about her. I have many questions about her. I have my, I, I'm concerned about her. I've got to say, I feel like she might have some problems. First, <laughs> I want to ask a question, which is super pedantic and annoying. What is this book about? And you know, you know that I don't mean like, can you just recycle the plot of the first 14 chapters of the book? But what is this book actually about? Heidi, what do you think? What, what's it's your like Coming of age. C- coming of, oh, okay. So like, like um, a building yeah, type a thing? It's a self-actualization novel. It's about our unnamed narrator becoming a woman, going moving from child to woman through marriage, which is a little weird, but normal, I guess, at that time. Well, I mean, if, if you get married at this point in your life, isn't that just the way it is? Yes, that's Regardless what I think of this, era. this novel is about. That's interesting. Okay. Tim, would you, do you, is that what you were? Yeah, that makes sense to me. I, I don't know that I would have come up with that, but having heard it, I'm going to adopt it as my answer because I don't think I can improve on it. So, Thanks, why do you ask, David? Thank you. Thanks for agreeing with me. <laughs> why do you ask, well, what David? What if you weren't going to agree with her? What would you say? <laughs> Well, I would say, well, I mean, now okay. he can't not agree with me. So, <laughs> right. You're right. Yeah. Yes, you can. You absolutely could. What if it's a um, horror story or something along those lines? Not a horror story, um, like, you know, it's not a Stephen King novel. movies yeah. or something like that. Yeah, like a Stephen King novel. But it is maybe a suspense novel, is what it is. That's better than a horror story. Horror stories, there's got to be viscera and bones and bloodlettings but i maybe yeah, it's that all just a stage. great suspense story what's the what's what's being suspended <laughs> what is going on at manderley is what's being suspended like it's just so foreboding every move that our heroine takes is fraught and her internal situation mirrors the external suspense. Mm. So, I mean, I'm not really making a case. I, I agree with Heidi. I think it's a coming of age story. So I, I haven't finished the book yet, but thus far it, it really fits a coming of age story. It's just so suspenseful. I think it's kind of a marriage of a suspense novel and a building's roman. Let's talk about this coming of age thing. Cause I, that's, that's not something I, that's not a way I had thought about it because to this point, I don't think we have seen her um, you, you find herself. In fact, I read it as the exact opposite. The further we get into the novel, the less she knows herself. 
So yeah. uh, that, that might not be inconsistent with, with what you're saying, because, you know, by the end of the novel, maybe she does find herself, but could you, could you explain a little bit more about where you're, where you're coming from on that and how you see that playing out? Mm-hmm. In other words, could you defend, defend your highly questionable defend take? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so full disclosure, I have indeed finished the novel. I read it like immediately after last, um, our last, last recording. Yeah. Um, so I read it actually on the plane while flying to North Carolina to surprise David at a party. So I finished the whole novel that day, which was kind of great. And Tim, you were there. It was really fun. I was there. So, I was there. Um, small, small party, yeah. just to be clear. Mostly yeah. family. It wasn't like a party that, that people weren't invited to that might be listening. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's definitely what I meant when I said small. That's, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Go on. You just, yeah. Um, okay. So there's so much attention paid in this section that we just read uh, of her inner life and her assumptions and everything she's thinking, feeling her awkwardness um, about her marriage, about the house, about this new social status that she's inhabiting and doesn't know how to do it, which would be awkward for anybody. But this particular girl is young and callow and very, very self-absorbed. And, and so I think that we have in this section one of the problems of novel, a deeper problem in the novel. Uh, there's other problems in the novel to be to be overcome. For example, what the heck's going on with Max? What about Rebecca? All these other things that take place in kind of the, the story proper, the gothic part of the story. Underneath all of that is this question of what is this girl going to do about any of it? And everything that we've seen so far says that she's going to be passive and awkward and do nothing. And so as we see that part of her develop, that is why I'm saying this is a coming of age story. So Go ahead, Tim. Tim, you were going to say something. She, um, in the first part of the book, which we read, which we discussed last week, she has this uh, person who's opposing her. Um, Mrs. Is it Van Hopper? Did I already mm-hmm. forget her name? Yeah. And it seems like in the second part of the book, we have another female opposition, Mrs. Danvers. And they're set up, um, like, who's going to be the boss of the house? Like, it's Maxim because he owns right. it. Right. Um, but, but not really. But not really. It's going to be one of these two women. Well, and, and last week we talked about how at, we were trying to figure out who the bad guy is. And so it's right. interesting that you say that these, these two people that are almost in opposition to her. There's, and, and she finds it so difficult as our heroine to stand against, to just assert her own preferences to Mrs. Danvers. Mm-hmm. Um, so page 74 the heroine says, Mrs. Danvers, I heard myself saying, I hope we shall be friends and come to understand one another. You must have patience with me, you know, because this sort of life is new to me. I've lived rather differently and I want, and I do want to make a success of it and above all to make Mr. De Winter happy. I know I can leave all the household arrangements to you, Mr. De, Mr. De Winter said so, and you must just run things as they have always been. I shan't want to make any changes. So in, by doing that, our heroine is just kind of, in a, in a way, she's defaulting to Mrs. Danvers, the housekeeper, but she's also saying, hey, the former mistress of the house, Rebecca, let's just keep doing things the same way that they've been done. 
So in a way, I think it's kind of interesting that she's bowing to Mrs. Danvers and in doing so, she's also bowing to the memory of Rebecca. Go ahead, Heidi. Yeah, I just, I think that he's exactly right. Like there's, uh, in enabling Mrs. Danvers to run this house this way, she is attempting to ingratiate herself to her uh, because she truly doesn't know what she's doing right now. Uh, so, but instead it just keeps Rebecca then kind of a, this unspoken tyrant that's running everything, even in her absence. And I think that our narrator dimly is beginning to understand that, and particularly in the last chapter, uh, there's this, you know, her fraught conversation with Mrs. Danvers. Uh, but at the mm-hmm. beginning, she's just trying, I mean, she's essentially trying to make herself invisible. She's unnamed and invisible. Who is the narrator? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the question I have though, is whether the narrator is actually crazy. Oh, really? Go on. I don't believe anything that she says. Really? No, I haven't finished the book. Yeah. Because I'm like purposefully kind of pacing it as we go. Because I'm kind of interested in what that experience is going to be like for doing the podcast. But, you know, a little experiment on my own capacity to do that, to do this while uh, not knowing the end of the story. When I read her, I be- it seems to me like the, the story is constantly... The only person we can believe that things are as sinister as they seem is is our narrator, and it, she hasn't necessarily, to to me, proven herself to be trustworthy yet. Like, for example, is Mrs. Danvers actually as sinister as she seems? Does mm. the narrator actually have as many reasons to be bothered by the people who visit? Does she, is she seeing the world as it actually is? Is she actually, um, does she have a realistic view of her marriage and the, like the way she, she doesn't even tell her, she doesn't even tell herself the truth. So why should we believe that she tells us the truth? You know, for example, there's a conversation with Max where they're talking about their marriage and he's like, she's like, no, 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 we're definitely happy. I promise. And he's like, okay, if you say so, I think it's a failure, but, and she's like, begging him to believe that it's true. But she even says there that she was basically just telling herself that in the moment to make herself feel better, mm. to make herself feel like she made the right decision. So if she's not even telling the other characters the truth, then why should we believe that what she says about people like Mrs. Danvers is the truth? Right. It, the book is made, it feels sinister because she tells us she felt that it was sinister, but how much of that is in her head and how, and, and how much of, that then is controlling our perspective and our sense that it's actually sinister. David, do you, do you think that she's lying with intention to us? Is no, I that think the she way hasn't that she's found untrustworthy? <laughs> and, so, and so because she's not found herself, she's unable to report what's happening external to herself because like, what's the saying? She can't get out of her own way. Yeah, I like think that. she can't get out of her own head. Yeah. So she sees, yeah. she's seeing the world in a very specific way. And, and whether it's inexperience, immaturity, youth, whatever you want to put it, or those things, or the fact that she's just crazy or some combination of mm-hmm. her own anxieties. Like on the one hand, it's immaturity. On the other hand, it's craziness. Most likely it's, an, it's something like anxiety combined with immaturity. But, you know, obviously everybody who's listening, who's read the book, including you, Heidi, is like... 
just shaking no, their head. No, right I think now. you're right. I think you're completely right in everything that you said. There's, and I'm glad you asked what you did, Tim, about whether or not our narrator is lying, um, which would be kind of an interesting twist. If you're, there's a couple of different ways you could go with this novel. As at this point, if you're the author, right? Um, yeah. But I think that you've hit the nail on the head about this woman, this young woman's perceptions. Everything that we're getting is perception here. And actually nothing sinister even happens until chapter 14 when Mrs. Danvers goes a little bit crazy in Rebecca's old bedroom. And that is, I think, the first clue at all that we have that something's actually wrong in this house. Everything else could be explained by this narrator overreacting in a very adolescent mind. Go ahead, Tim. Do you agree with um, that, Tim, or no? Well, the, the only other thing, again, I've not finished the book, but the only other thing that kind of sparked my concerns about something going wrong was the meeting with this strange, yeah, uh, mentally yeah. impaired young man down on the beach. That was spooky. That was really yes, spooky. but it could have just been spooky because the way she sees the scene. Yeah. I'm going to stick with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Could just be the way that she sees the scene. I think there's something because of Maxim's response when she comes back, I'm taking it that it's more than her worry is more than just in her head. I think that Maxim doesn't want her interacting with this guy very much. Yeah, I, I think one of the smart things about this novel, one of the genius elements of this novel is the way it holds a, a sort of tension in terms of in terms of Maxim's response to everything that is going on around him. Because on the one hand, it makes sense that a grieving husband who then brings in this new bride and she's young and, you know, trying to fit in he would distance himself from the things that he's been through in the past and he would be secretive about it just out of grief and trying to create a new life so on the one hand that makes sense on the other hand yeah maybe he has something to hide and she's trying to discover bit by bit how to respond to his weirdness so on the one hand it makes sense that he's being weird like you could come up with any number of reasons for why he responds to the way he does and so that's one of the great things about what Daphne du Maurier does here. On the other hand, you could also just read it like he's a creepy dude. <laughs> and right. You know, th right. Th whether he's actually creepy or not is what I think is where the real tension of the story lies. The house is part of it. And the Rebecca factor hovering over everything, like a sort of um, all seeing ghost is, mm -hmm. is there. That, that's obviously there, but that's the sort of staple of an old house drama, right? The real question for me, the real question of what's sinister is how much is, is well, I mean, ultimately, the book hasn't really come out and said this, but you can tell it's like, well, how much is Maxim responsible for what happened mm -hmm. to Rebecca and all that? So, I, See, I, it's interesting, David, because I am not taking her, the thread of her misreporting as a primary source of tension. Like, I'm just kind of believing all of the tension. It, that it's somehow real. And I totally grant that, that it can be kind of conjured, but I think that it's a young woman who's responding to real external threats 
or some real external mystery or discomfort in the house. Like I take that to be sure. real. I, yes, I agree with that. Okay. I think so, it's a matter so of degree. I, yeah, maybe it's a matter of degree. Because I think maybe you maybe you're like in the red. The needle is in the red. You're like, man, I just don't know if like she's just like really overreactive, and I'm maybe a little bit more in the middle. Like, yeah, she's reacting strongly, but it's not the needle's not in the red for me. Do you think that's a fair? Yeah, maybe. I think maybe the maybe maybe it kind of hovers around the word sinister. Like, mm. there's something. It, it makes sense that thing would be things would be a little bit weird in this house. First of all, the kind of house it is. Second right. of all, what has happened recently. What's happened, the right? The of the house. Third, there's the fact that she's just been thrown in there and doesn't really belong there. So all, And so it would also feel weird to her as the newbie, so to speak, mm. who had, doesn't have experience in that sort of a setting. So all those things make sense that it would feel weird. Yeah. But to what extent, for example, is Mrs. Danvers a sinister figure? And everything, the way that she describes the way she, every time she describes her, she describes her as this like skeletal type figure. Even the, when they go up the drive and the way she sees what we talked about last week, what she sees with the, you know, the threatening trees and all that, someone else sees it and it doesn't see it as threatening at all. Remember the guy that comes to visit and they're talking about, he sees all the grounds and the trees and everybody else, even Max sees them as beautiful, but she sees them as threatening. So is it that it's that's weird and uncomfortable what's happening there? Or is it that something sinister is happening there? Mm-hmm. She seems to be coming to the conclusion that there is something sinister going on. But do we just, it seems like you're just accept, you just accept, and I don't mean that as like critical. You like, just yeah. accept that. Dude, you're so naive. Yeah. You think this is like a terrifying story. <laughs> you think this is just suspenseful. You're so naive. No, I give, I totally get what you're saying. Yeah, I, I do think that there's, I think that she's responding to something that's genuinely sinister. So, I, Heidi, you can jump in at any time. I think one thing mm-hmm. that's impacting my reading of this is that I thought it was a different kind of book. I didn't oh. expect a Jane Eyre-style gothic novel. Mm. I expected more of a, a literary British mystery novel. And I'm not talking like... Like Cloak Sayers and or, Dagger. Not, I'm not talking like Sayers or Agatha Christie or something like that, but like a psychological mystery novel more than like a... Where, where there's actually something they're trying to solve more than like a gothic Jane Eyre novel where the girl's trying to find herself. <laughs> so my pers- what I was expecting it to be is different than what it was or is. Mm-hmm. Um, so that might be also coloring my, my view, which is, you know, both the kind of neither here nor there. I got, I was going to make a judgment it's, about myself on that, but it's funny because I feel like if I had not, finished the novel i'd have a lot more to say right now i know heidi i know i keep looking at you and you ruin, like, you ruin i don't want to know what heidi, heidi is ruins the now. podcast and i think even whatever it is <laughs> the, the, the time that heidi ruins the podcast we also have come off the i one, always knew this would happen now i'm one, gonna go obsessively into my head to figure out how i failed <laughs> And I'll be just like our unnamed narrator. So. <laughs> yeah, we're no longer going to call you by a name. That's right. Yes. Um, she, she who is on Zoom with us. That's right. You must not <laughs> the be The other named. one. We I interrupted you, Heidi. Sorry. Up. So, yeah, I feel like if I had not finished it, I would have a lot more to say right now. Because at this point of the novel, I had made a lot of assumptions about the novel. And then, now that I have finished it, I feel like anything I say would be colored by the fact that I finished the end of this novel. So 
I, which has not ever happened on the podcast before. I find that interesting. This is a very plot-driven novel, actually. By this, even though it feels so character-driven right now, once the plot is resolved, it colors everything about interpreting this section that we read. Oh, really? Really? Because this section that we just read is so internal. This is this girl describing her very awkward first days as the mistress of this manor, who, and she has literally no help at all. So should we just right? end the podcast like now she, and go read and then come back next week? <laughs> um, she, you know, this was when I was reading this part that... I kept, I was like, this is what I would do if I was your girlfriend. Why don't you sit down with your husband and you say, I do not know what in the heck I am doing. What do I do from 7 a.m. to 10 a.m. as a mistress of a house like this, right? Like, what do I do after that? What do I do after lunch? Like, tell me how to, tell me what to do. That's what this, that's what a woman would do, right? Mm -hmm. Not a girl child bride, not a child bride. And this is why I'm saying this is a coming of age story, because this is a young woman who has no idea what she's doing, no idea how to advocate for herself, no idea how to distinguish the perceptions in her own mind and connect them to what is actually happening out here. And I think that is the problem of the novel, because all of these sinister things that are happening, they do have an explanation, right? So, but she can't figure out how to get there. Mm. And so Mm. she's in many ways her own antagonist right now. And this is one of those novels that's much easier to talk about after you've read it, you know, mm-hmm. like at the end, now I want it. Now I'm like, oh, I want to say, I think that this is because of this and this over here is because of this, because this, this novelist, Daphne du Maurier really is building up to something. And, and the, we have all of these little clues. We have a lot yeah. of clues in this section, but as David's pointing out, our narrator's perceptions are so self orient she's like gaslighting herself this entire time so, someone said that on the facebook page someone yes. said i've never read a book where where the main character is gaslighting herself right and you, you said so the same actually, thing okay so it's actually kind of hard to talk about it because i want to say i want to start pointing out all the things that matter but that's just cheating right so so i was reading a in the in the new york review of books this week there is an amazing new profile of Kaza Shiguro, who has a new novel coming out on next Tuesday. Oh. Uh, it's called Clara, I read that. Clara and the Sun. You read the profile? Mm-hmm. Yes. So it, it's by Giles Harvey, and it was published uh, on the 23rd. And there's a, there's a paragraph in it that smacked me in the face um, and made me think of this book. And it's a great profile, and his new book is really... I've been reading some of it. It's really good. One of my favorite writers, though, so, you know, it's like he could describe the, you know, a pear tree growing and a little boy climbing into it and taking a nap. And I'd be like, this book is so good. <laughs> um, actually, that, that probably could be good. But um, he wrote, he, so this profile says this, um, it is not for nothing that Ishiguro has named Charlotte Bronte as the novelist who influenced him most. And then this bit. From Jane Eyre, he learned how to write first-person narrators who hide their feelings from themselves but are transparent to other people. Interesting. Rereading the book a few years ago, he kept coming across episodes and thinking, oh my goodness, I just ripped that off. Um, and then it goes on. But that line there was like one of those ones that I wrote down. 
he learned how to write first person narrators who hide their feelings from themselves, but are transparent to other people. Because this is a really complex notion in fiction because there's, first of all, that's just a fascinating concept. I think it applies to this book, but there's three different elements to this that make it complicated because on the one hand, you've got the narrate the the character who is the narrator, who, who is in the moment, right? Who is, who the narrator is presenting as experiencing a scene or a moment with a limited view Mm. of the world. Mm. and doesn't know themselves then you've got the third character the the other characters who everybody else looks at them and knows exactly who they are which we have in this book um and then you have the third element is you have the narrator at the time when they're telling the story who looks back and may or may not know themselves as the character that was in the book so on the one hand we might have an older and wiser character who has finally found herself looking back at her youthful self and creating the story. Or we might also have an older narrator who's not wiser and still doesn't know herself and is telling the story about herself. And then we've got us. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and how do we interact right. with the inter- pieces, the bits of information that are be- being given to us? And this is, it's like a really complex, I guess that's a square because mm-hmm. there's four parts, but it's like a cube of complexity in terms of how you right. how you craft that narrative. Because in that box is all this information that's getting shaken up. And if you're on a different corner, you experience it in a different corner in the cube. Just bear with me on this metaphor. Then you you view, you experience that information in a different way. Um, and the, so the question for me is, if you look at that that line in the profile, who hides her feelings from herself but are transparent to other people. Does Do you agree that that applies here? So on the one yes. hand, is this a character who is hiding her feelings from herself and does everyone else see her for who she is? Yes, I think that that's completely true uh, with with one exception, with one exception in the novel. But what, I, You mean there's one character who doesn't see her for yes. her? Okay. Yes, yes. Um, and I think, and I keep saying this, I think that is the problem that the novel is going to take on. Not what happened to Rebecca, right? Like all these other things are the backdrop for that, for the for the the development and the resolution of child bride to competent, uh, House, empowered woman. Yeah, yeah. and I, I yes, and I think that that's <laughs> where we get kind of this this underlying contemplation of feminism of womanhood of what it means Mm -hmm. and what it takes to turn a child into a woman i think that's a very big deal in this novel can i ask you a question related to Mm -hmm. this that i was thinking about i was listening to the audiobook last night while i was driving somewhere and this question got stuck in my head rebecca everybody had previously turned to rebecca to run to quote run the house right but then it's also pretty clear that max and Danvers and the butler and all, they all played this very significant role, even when Rebecca was there. So for our narrator, how does, what does she view as being lady of the house? Like, what does that person supposed to do in her mind through this point in the novel? Because she feels very not capable of it. Mm -hmm. But is that because she has the wrong view of what her role is actually supposed to be? And that the person who she's, whose shadow she is in, I, Rebecca, mm-hmm. her understanding of it would have been different. And in that way, our narrator could learn to be like that. Did that make any sense? What I just yeah. asked. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I think it's a good question. And I think to your 
to your point that you just made about writing. Tim, I think she's just going to say you have to wait till the end. <laughs> Maybe so. Who knows? That is such an insufferable thing to say, though, right? Like, I can't bring myself to say anything like that. But it's like when you're uh, in an I'm, argument with someone and you yeah. say, um, "Have you read the latest New York Times editorial?" Oh, okay. Oh, you right. haven't read it yet. Oh, exactly. okay. Which yep. is like kind of like just okay. saying, oh, "Then I won because I read the article." Right. You know, and really, yes, the other person's I'm more educated than you. Yeah, that's kind of yeah. So that's annoying single. when people say that. So please forgive me if I'm being insufferable. But I think I feel the, I feel like you're being very careful to like let us still enjoy the suspense you're of the being book. Very I really appreciate it. I'm being very sufferable. Thank you, few. Oh, um, to the point, David, that you made that quote about being able to write characters who, who essentially don't know themselves, but other people see them. Right. Yeah, for who then, they are. Yeah. Yes, for who they are. Um, that is the problem with her inability to become the mistress of this home because it actually is really, really hard. And it is a, comp- that, that's one of those things that young women are brought up to do. And it's clear that Rebecca has always been in this high social class. Right. So she, and grew up in a home very much like this. And so she knew how to ride and how to hunt and how to, how to run a household and how to order a menu and how to hire servants and what to tell, what, what is her job and what's the housekeeper's job. I mean, it's just such a subtle, it's, it's a life. It's like a di- completely different culture. And yeah, it's like so hard. So I think the problem with our unnamed narrator is that she feels so, she's so insecure and so unable to know herself that she assumes that she's not doing a good job because she's such a failure, right? Because she can't do it because Rebecca is better than her. Instead of saying like, I actually just don't know how to do this and I need help. Yeah. Because if she just acted like a normal human being and didn't (laughs) hide behind doors and stuff broken things into like if she stopped acting like acting like my nine-year-old things would be less weird yeah they would just respect her more right or she could ask like she could ask maxim she could talk to maxim's sister hey i didn't grow up i grew up in this kind of home and yet here we are can you make me a list of the things i need to do can you stay here for a day and show me you know all those those are the kinds of things that that you and i would do i mean you would never be a young child bride but these are the kinds of things that an an Mm -hmm. adult human being does So, but she's not, she's a child and she thinks like a child and she's painfully shy and all these things. And I have like so much compassion for this sweet young woman who just kind of needs someone my age to come and take her under a wing and tell her how to be a grown up, right? And she doesn't have that. And and instead Mm -hmm. of just saying, that's because I literally don't have the skills to do it. And so I just need to learn. She blames herself. And, and that's what I mean about like this gaslighting of herself. That's a small example of it. That's probably the biggest example that we have of it in this section with the housekeeping is this is, she doesn't know how to be a lady and she's so insecure and she's convinced herself that's because she's a failure instead of just, I don't know how to do it and I need help. I, you know, it's really interesting. Just a little bit of sociological input here. I read in a Malcolm Gladwell book one time about this, um, series of psychological, like a psychological survey um, that was performed among kind of like families that they deemed successful successful, and families they de- deemed unsuccessful. And I think the main difference was um, like psychological health, 
financial well-being, sorts of things like this. Things that I think like most people would probably agree about. And they they followed families around, families from successful fam- successful families and unsuccessful families, and they just tried to discern what the difference in the parenting was. And of course, there's huge variety among like among successful parents, and there's huge variety among unsuccessful parents. But the thing that the researchers discovered was that the thing that successful parents did more than anything else was they taught their kids to assert themselves like toward authorities. So there's this little story that Gladwell tells in one of his books about um, a researcher is riding the car with the mother and the son and the mother is taking the son like 10 years old to the doctor's office. Before they get to the doctor's office, the mother says to the son, now, how do you, this is just a checkup tell me how you're feeling. What do you want the doctor to know? And the son, you know, says, my, you know, foot has been bothering me a little bit. Now they get to the doctor's office and the doctor does the checkup and he gets to the end and he says, you know, so have you been feeling okay? The son says, yeah, I've been feeling fine. The mother says, Johnny, but what did you tell me in the car? And then Johnny says, uh, he doesn't really want to say. And the mother says, Johnny, tell the doctor what you told me in the car, because that's what we're here for. So Johnny then had to kind of like assert himself to this authority figure, this, this doctor. He said, my foot's been bothering me. Okay. So now the doctor tends to the foot and, you know, you go forward. And so I, I thought of that when I'm reading this book. Rebecca has no parents that we know of in her life. The maternal figure that our unnamed. I'm sorry, not not Rebecca, not Rebecca. Our unnamed narrator has no parents in her life. The maternal figure that she does have in her life is just like kind of a squabbling, you know, tyrant of a small kingdom, Mrs. Van Hopper Hooper. Why am I screwing her name up already? And so now she's thrust into our heroine is thrust into this house where she's got no guidance. And there's this new, I'm really playing the new maternal figure of Mrs. Danvers, who's actually kind of like suppressing her in a way. And it, ju- and it leads to this, I, I find myself as the reader in this state of frustration, like you were expressing, Heidi, like she needs someone to teach her how to assert herself. She's got to have it or she's going to be stymied and it's going to go nowhere good for her. And it creates a real tension where I, I, I lean forward and every new encounter with Mrs. Danvers or even with Maxima or some of the neighbors that come in, I keep waiting for her to step up and say, get out of my house, you know, or like, we're having meatloaf for dinner tonight. That's what we're having because I like meatloaf and it just doesn't happen, you know? So it creates this strength, like this, in, this tension in the reader that you want self-assertion. And so it makes me think, I'm going to look away from you, Heidi. I'm not going to take any I, I clues am a, from your face. You're a, you're a, a locked, wall. you're a wall. That's right. I think part of the victory of the book, if there is going to be a victory, must come from our heroine asserting herself in some way. And maybe it's leaving Maybe it's taking command of the house, though I doubt that's going to happen because we knew from page one, she's no longer at the estate. So, but I think that she's got to assert herself. Okay. Also, 
I had an idea, David. I had an idea that maybe we could, at this point in the book, put forward what we think is going to happen in the book, because I think it could be pretty funny when we look back and oh, get by it all potentially means, do that. Really, <laughs> you got to join me with it. You got you to come <laughs> along for the ride. You have to assert your bogus harebrained scheme about what's going to happen in this book. <laughs> but, oh, but you've seen the movie. You kind of know. But I will say, I think the movie's, I've heard the movie's different as ending, and I haven't seen it in a very long time. Do you, so, but you remember the movie, you remember the ending well enough to say, no, I don't, maybe you should I don't just really, do it, honestly, I don't really honestly remember. And then like I've, I, the Hitchcock movie, they changed the ending is my understanding. Huh? Okay. So, I'm going to do it. Go. So that everyone can kind of giggle at me. Um, question before we do that though, have we met um, the, uh, the character, hold on, I'm looking up his name. Uh, Jack Favell yet? Have we met him in this yes, reading? Yes, he is. Yes. Okay. He, I am now safe to like put forward my theory. Mm-hmm. Here, my theory is, oh gosh, <laughs> it's going to be so bad when I find out how wrong I am. I the narrator think, is Rebecca. <laughs> no, I think that Rebecca had a dark side. I think that she had something with Jack Favell. I think that Jack Favell shows up at the house to kind of flirt with Mrs. Danvers because Mrs. Danvers has this kind of like strange affinity for Rebecca. Like she's like just, you know, she wants to be her. She at least kind of like, you know, wishes that she was still alive. So I think this Jack Favell character who's really dark and kind of sinister, he's an alcoholic, he's just trouble. I think that he and Rebecca had an illegitimate child together who's living down by the beach. Maxim feels obligated to take care of him, right? They're related. Jack Favell and Rebecca are related. So it could in some way contribute to the young man's mental defect. And I think that Rebecca... When discovered that Jack Favell was the father of her child, sailed out into the ocean and like entered her life. Is that the craziest thing you've ever heard? Heidi, you're being so good. You are like I'm doing such a good stone job. faced. I am I'm like David, you're being stone faced too. Okay. I'm just gonna put that out there and now we can lock it away. And we can come back at the end of the episodes and say, oh, 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 Tim, remember, remember your illegitimate child theory? <laughs> I think every book is made better by an illegitimate child. Do you know what I mean? So that's mm. not true. I don't think that. Like, good night, moon, not made better by an illegitimate <laughs> child. <laughs> I take it back. I'm trying to think through the scenarios that that would be in, involved. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that there's definitely something. I think maybe Rebecca's reputation is going to have to be. It's got to be knocked down in a peg. It's got to be. I think part of me. There's going to be questions of who, who or how she died. Who, who you know impacted led. Who took actions that led to her her demise. Um, What I, I mean, part of me wants it to be like a Shirley Jackson. There's a ghost in the walls story you guys have read haunting of hill house right mm-hmm. no 
Haunting of Hill House is a great book. It's like, is it really? Really. A close reads quality book? It's a ghost story. It's pretty creepy, but it's, Ooh. I would say it's that. Yeah, it's probably that level. I mean, cheap. Okay. Yeah. I can't get my head away from like the idea that this is like a British like mystery novel more than a gothic novel. So I'm trying to think of how she, how would she subvert the whole gothic mystery or had the whole gothic novel genre. And then also, I don't want to just predict that it's going to be the same thing as Jane Eyre. Um, like, is there going to be a, is there going to be a fire at some point? There's, right. You know, it, it can, uh, real question though. Can you have a gothic novel if it doesn't involve a fire? I've never heard of one. a fire within the main residence. Yeah, right, right. Um, is Wuthering Heights a fire in the main residence? Just the fire of Heathcliff's psychopathology. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I need to say something I, about I, my theory. That. I, I feel like after having spoken my theory, the two of you are now treating me as if I've like committed some terrible party foul. You no, know, you, I, no, you I'm, no know. I'm thinking through what elements of, your, of it make sense. Okay. Okay. Because I think like we should just move on. Um, no, I don't want you guys want, to, yeah, feel no, like I, like, I want to told an off color joke. Here's, we actually have a couple of real clues in the story. Yeah, there's uh, some to support, ooh, foreshadowing. Like, yes. For example, when on the beach and she finds the cottage and yes. Ben is there. Yes. Uh, and she's having a conversation with Ben. He tells her in this section, you have nice eyes. And then he, she, and then he goes on to say, not like the other one. She gave me a feeling like a snake. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. He has so clearly been rejected. We, we do have some clues up to this point, especially that phrase, the other one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we yeah. have, and I say that, and then we have Favelle, and then we have Mrs. Danvers' very strange obsession with Rebecca's space. Uh, so weird. So we, we have clues that are moving towards that this is to David's and both, to both of your points. We have over here a series of clues that if we had a more a, a narrator who is paying attention to something other than her own insecurities, she could be again to catch on. Mm. But this yeah. is to David's point that what we have are a whole bunch of perceptions and conclusions that our narrator comes to without noticing these other things that our really smart novelist has embedded within the story. Mm. Which there makes is a, a dissonance between the perception and the reality, which we have to resolve at some point. Yeah. Which has the effect of not making it clear to us what the mystery actually is. Exactly. We have, we have yes. a vibe so far, but we don't have a, we don't have a definition. Mm-hmm. Like there's the vibe of mystery, right? There's the sort of right. mood and Which, tone. Which to your and all point, David, to your point about the mystery novel versus the gothic novel, gothic novels are so atmospheric. And, Atmosphere, uh, yeah. and, Atmosphere and, is and, a better word than vibe. <laughs> um, 
so we have this like heavy atmosphere in this novel, but a mystery novel has like a clear problem to solve, right? We've got like a body or a missing jewel or something like that. And here we just have kind of this very young adolescent narrator trying to adapt to her life. And meanwhile, these sinister things are going on. And if you're close reading and paying attention, you're catching these little things. Like mm-hmm. if Rebecca is so perfect, why does she give you a feeling like a snake? Right. Right. So, and, and so, but our narrator doesn't catch any of that because she's so busy thinking about how she can't measure up. So mm. this is, this is the dissonance that uh, at this Maybe. point in the novel, you could come to it and be like, I don't even know what's going on in this story, but there is something going on and her perceptions are part of the problem. Mm. And it goes, it's the same thing with the conversation that she has with Max about their marriage. <laughs> Cause she's just trying to convince him. She just spends the whole time trying to convince him that they're happy Instead of saying, whoa, he doesn't think we're happy. Mm-hmm. That's actually a problem. And it's not going to, I can't solve it by just telling him we're happy. Like, what does that actually mean? She doesn't right. stop and smell the roses, so to speak. Right. Because in her mind, she thinks the problem is that she's not as good as Rebecca. Right. I right. can't measure up. Right. Yeah. So, she thinks she can make him happy. And the reason that he's not yes. happy is because of her. So it doesn't seem to occur to her like, hey, do you have any problems? So is like, that? It but seems is like that, a really valid question to ask her husband, who's acting weird. But she blames herself. It's me. Mm-hmm, I haven't been doing mm-hmm. enough. I'm not like Rebecca. I'm not good enough. I'm failing. Instead of instead of another natural assumption might be, hey, is there something wrong with you that I need to know? Yeah. Is this? Uh, you talk about it being a coming of age novel. Is this a sign of immaturity? Like, are these signs of? Is this how people are when they're immature? I mean, I know that self-absorption is to some degree and it varies from person to person. Or is it a sign of something, uh, I'll use the word again, deeper, more sinister within herself. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean evil. I just mean like she is afflicted by something more complex than than immaturity. Mm -hmm. And I know that you can't necessarily answer that. No, but I, I think I can affirm that as like the right question to ask, right? Like I think that that's, where we're at in the novel is, is there, this is not, if this was a more self-assured young woman, she might say something is going on here that isn't right. I can feel it. And I deserve an explanation for it. Right. But instead we have a narrator who's like, this is because I'm not as good as Rebecca. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So she's asking all the wrong questions and coming to all the wrong conclusions. And we meanwhile have no idea what, to your point, David, what we can believe that she's claiming. So there's a dissonance between our narrator and the reader. And that is, I think, brilliant writing on Daphne du Maurier's part. Like, I think she succeeds really brilliantly in creating this gap that you just have to keep going to figure out what's going on, right? <laughs> I, I, this is, I think part of the reason I love this book is because it really appeals to a form that I think is really compelling as dramatic narrative. Um, Crime and punishment is this way. Our main character does not know himself. I mean, does not know himself and is acting in a way that he's causing harm to others, of course. And he's also causing harm to himself. And the process of the book, the flowering of the book, is him finally coming to understand himself. And in a way, he can only understand himself through the kind of the anthropology of the gospel. Oh, this is who I am. This is what I have done. You know, and I, I find that 
a profoundly difficult task to take on as a writer. And I think that Daphne du Maurier is trying to do something similar with a very different character, not with a murderous character like Raskolnikov, but with almost the opposite of an Ubermensch. You've got like the wilting day flower who cannot grow, who cannot step forward, who cannot stand up straight, who can't say no or yes when anybody kind of pushes against her. Raskolnikov's the exact opposite. He wants to be the person who says, my will be done, you know? And our heroine is, seems to me, she's the exact opposite. But in both situations, the central problem is the problem of the self. They don't know themselves and are so hampered from redemption, joy, well-being, because they don't know themselves. I love that. Can, I can, love everything you just said. The central problem is the self. Yes. Is Which there, is kind of like, I, sorry, David, like, this is kind of, this is the big issue. For me, this is the big issue in life. It's like, it's not a politics problem. It's not an economic problem. It, you know, it's not a familiar problem. All those things are really important. But like, the problem of the self, of figuring out who I am and what my problem is, that seems to me like the whole task of, of life. And if being you do human. discover it, yeah, yeah. being yeah. human. And the if you do- The world is peopled by people who don't have self-knowledge. Yes. yes. And I think part of the reason that Socrates' like, admonition to know thyself is stuck with us for so long is not because it's pithy, but because it's <laughs> true. Exactly. It just also happens to be pithy happens also to be pithy. So can you think of a single great novel, like truly great novel, where you had a character who, tr- like your preta- protagonist actually knew themselves? Mm. Throughout the whole novel? Well, I mean, yeah, that's not the central point of the novel, I guess, or, right. one, of, or, the, or really. one of the defining... I don't think I can. Pride and Prejudice. I think Nope. That... Huckleberry Finn. Yep. Nope. Mm-hmm. Brad said revisited. No, nope. that's why the resolution. By, but that's every Russian why. thing anybody ever wrote. <laughs> it's right. It's all the self, and that's why Hamlet. the resolution, the the changing moment of every novel is repentance. Right. It's it's some kind of oh, a realization of hmm. the self that then changes the course of the novel, right? It's metanoia that I, I don't know, like I repent. That's what happens to Elizabeth Bennett. That's what you used Pride and Prejudice as your first example, right? Like that's, that is, it is an issue of her repentance that brings res- resolution to this novel. And that I think is because as Tim's pointing out, the central problem of every story, our own included, mm. is the problem of our, our, the need to return to the good. And sometimes you get a characters like in Pride and Prejudice who think they do know themselves and have the answers and their self-knowledge. Always wrong. Mm. Yeah. They're all, yeah. And then you've got, and sometimes you've got characters like this where the characters don't know themselves or don't think that they are capable or whatever. And sometimes the book mm-hmm. is just about a character like their own self-awareness about their lack of self-knowledge is not really part of the story, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. you know, but still the discovery of self-knowledge is part of the story. Even if it's not like, I've just finished, um, R2, R Richard, the second on the plays, the thing. And we spent a lot of time in act two, scene three, which is this famous speech 
uh, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings. And it's a story, it's, it's, the monologue is from Richard II kind of discovering that he's not merely a king, but he's a man. And it kind of, it culminates, um, for you have mistook me all this while. I live with bread like you, feel want, taste grief, need friends. Subjected thus, how can you say to me, I am a king? It's this wonderful moment of self-discovery that changes him. It changes the play in a lot of ways. And he's been such a pompous, uh, well, I don't know what the right word. He's been so pompous and out of touch with who he is up until that point. And it feels like such a relief when he comes to see himself. Again, I'm, I, we're talking about self-knowledge, but in this book, Rebecca, the self-knowledge, it's, I wonder if I can say this. It seems like when the kind of masculine tendency is towards self-knowledge of, of it, toward an over-evaluation, and I wonder for this young woman, it's self-knowledge caused by like an under-esteem. She kind of devalues herself. And I even wonder if that, I, I don't want to make too much out of that, but because I know, you know, plenty of men that have struggled with a lack of self-esteem and plenty of women who think far too highly of themselves. But it, it, the juxtaposition between Richard II thinking far too much of himself and our heroine and Rebecca thinking far too little of herself both have a problem of a lack of self-knowledge. The problem for us as readers, though, is that, like when I read, when I read about her, this narrator's takes on it on everything, I wish she would ask, but I also don't think she's wrong. Like, oh, what do you mean? There are plenty of things that she thinks she's not capable of yet, or she's not good at, or that whatever mm-hmm. that she doesn't live up to Rebecca, that she just doesn't live up to Rebecca. To Heidi's point earlier, right? Like she's not mm-hmm. really she doesn't she hasn't been bred, for lack of a better term, to be the lady of this house. She hasn't been prepared for that, and so she is not wrong to feel like she doesn't live up to what the tradition of those kind of places would ask her to be. So she does have a degree of self-awareness in that. The problem is how she responds to that is, mm-hmm. is where the immaturity seems to come in. Like on, on, in a sense, you can say the fact that she doesn't think too highly of herself is actually a good thing. She didn't mm-hmm. come in there, you know, now maybe it's purely driven by anxiety. And if so, that's probably why the problems come in, right? But there is a degree to which she's not, like she's being wise and saying, oh no, it's fine. You do the menus. I don't know what I'm doing. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's even like some of some of the elements like the way that she thinks about her clothes and being more simple than the average, you know, lady of a large manner would be. Like there's some there's some humility and wisdom there that's actually good. Mm-hmm. The problem is how she then responds to that. And that's but that's why that's why I wonder if does she look at that in a humble way and that's good, but then she then looks down on herself for that. Is that the problem? Like it's not actual humility, it's just What's not pride, but not humility. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think you're bringing up a really good point. And one thing that we haven't discussed that speaks to this point, David, is the fact that Maxim de Winter married her, right? He didn't just go out and find Rebecca part two. It's obvious Mm -hmm. from the beginning Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. he has chosen a different kind of woman 
mm-hmm. and brought her into this home. Now, whether he does that from sinister motives or from righteous motives remains to be seen. But that's another question that our narrator isn't asking that could be fruitful to figure out what's going on, right? Well, and he says to her, he put rushed her into it. She's like, no, 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 I really wanted to. And and she she could she should she should have said, like he's not wrong. He did rush her into it, and he says that to her, mm-hmm. and she just kind of ignores yeah. it. So right. because she wants him to be happy, she wants to be able to, right. you know. Well, and she married a man older. I mean, there's so many psychological layers to this novel, right? She married a man old enough to be her father who uh, she is now not asking for help because she doesn't want to fail him. Like she treats him much more like a father that she's trying to please than a husband that she is equal to and that they're building a life together. And so there's that, like there's, but to both of your points, that's a problem of the self, Right. That's not something that Max can solve for her. He can't come in and give her enough affirmation to help her own the fact that she is a wife, not a daughter. Right. So there's there's all of these threads to be resolved and hovering over all of it is Rebecca. Right. Mm. Who is that? Who is Rebecca? Is uh, and 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 can our young narrator ever learn to be a wife in her own right? So it's a book with daddy issues is what you're saying. I think that that's part of it. I think that there's, uh, there's, there is kind of the straightforward Gothic plot that we have going on. And then tied into that, there's, there's a very subtle psychological study of each character. Um, I would say Mrs. Danvers psychological study is less subtle and more in your face. That's (laughs) real extreme. Um, But the rest of them have like this uh, very kind of, I think a very round to use that terminology. Like she has a lot of these very round, subtle characters within this novel. The interesting thing about Danvers though, and one of the reasons that I doubt our narrator is because everybody else around her doesn't think it look at her the same way that the narrator does. Like the narrator Mm -hmm. is terrified of her and Max just keeps saying over and over again, what is wrong with you? All she, she's just a housekeeper, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And for, for the narrator, she's this like larger than life figure that terrifies that, you know, she's like, she might as well be a, you know, an orc to a like hobbit. a monster. Yeah. No, it's true. She treats, she describes her in like very monstrous terms, like very inhuman, monstrous terms. Because and everybody else our is narrator just... is acting like a child, right? Mm. She's, she breaks something and she hides it so she doesn't get caught. And yeah, get she hides trouble, behind the door. Right? Like, I, I hear what you guys are saying. I, I kind of want to defend our heroine a little bit, though. She's in this situation. Well, we're not attacking her. She's, and to your point, you may say whatever you like, but I really need it to be known. I'm not attacking her. I'm saying she needs to grow up, not that she's doing anything Agreed. wrong. Agreed. Yeah. I, I think the dispute, I think that her relationship with Miss Danvers is complicated because of the position that she's in. And that position is shared by nobody else in the novel. So Maxim can like say, why are you so intimidated by um, Mrs. Danvers? Like you're the boss, honey. But Maxim, but it's not even true because Maxim is paying Mrs. Danvers bills. Um, Mrs. Danvers is probably twice the age of this young woman. All the narrator, or excuse me, all the neighbors that come in who can't understand the conflict between Mrs. Danvers and our heroine, 
they don't understand it either because they're not in this situation. I mean, I think that the conflict between Mrs. Danvers and our heroine is unique within the book. And thus it makes, um, it makes our heroine's situation much more frail than the other character's situation with regards to Mrs. Danvers. That's true. And one of the reasons that's true is because our unnamed narrator does not know her place in this household. Right. And that's one of the things Mrs. Danvers says is tell me what to do. And that's one thing that's Mm -hmm. been, um, that both Maxim and Maxim's sister say to her, Mrs. Danvers won't mind at all if you tell her mm-hmm. what to do, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because I think this, this uh, like, um, what's that other novel we met, read about the upstairs, downstairs novel? Remains of the Day. Yes, when we read Remains of the Day, it was the same kind of thing. Like this, um, the question of the roles actually does matter in English society. So if you have this, this middle-class woman who's actually closer to Mrs. Danvers' class than she is to yeah. Maxim's class, Yeah. right? And there's no nobody there to train her how to be a lady of the house. And so then Mrs. Danvers becomes this like monstrous reminder of her failure all the time. Um, yeah, and, that- and we've seen in this section that Mrs. Danvers is an antagonist. Like she it's not all in, it's not all in this woman's head. Yeah, yeah. is absolutely out to get her. And is that whole scene in that bedroom when she makes her touch all of Rebecca's stuff and she so asks her if creepy. she wants to come in here and lay in the bed and put it on her what? face. And like, that's crazy. It's, like, it's, we're not so, dealing with a norm. Mrs. Danvers is not a normal person. She's when you were reading person. that, Heidi, were you thinking, uh, Mrs. Danvers, are you kind of like showing us yourself? is this really what you're all about? Like, this is not a wish for our heroine. This is about you, Mrs. Danvers. Yeah. Yes, exactly right. Yes. So I, I don't think that Mrs. Danvers is just like the housekeeper that the lady is that, that our unnamed narrator is afraid of. Like she is a sinister figure, but our young wife, our heroine, she's still, is matter of responding to her in a very childlike way instead of as a woman. Mm. Yeah. We should wrap this up. Um, so let's do some, let's do some final thoughts. Um, Tim, why don't I let you do a final thought first and then we'll let Heidi go. We've talked about, um, well crafted novels tend to, turn in the middle of their narrative. So Richard II being an example, Richard II goes from a lack of knowledge to knowledge about himself in the almost the exact middle of the play. So I'm looking forward into the middle of this book, which is going to be about chapter 18. I'm expecting something's going to happen And I think it must have something to do with our narrator coming to know herself while learning something about this kind of mystery that she's in. And I'm expecting it because mine is a 410 page book. I'm expecting it around page 200, which I think is chapter 18. That's, that's what I'm looking forward to. Heidi. Um, 
I think this is a more complex novel than it appears right away because the plot is actually, for me, because I like novels like this, I'm like into the plot. I want to find out who Rebecca is and what happens. Like I just wanted to get through the novel um, to find out what happened. But then I found myself haunted by a couple of different things. You know, like once I figured out what happened, you have that like big sigh of relief. Oh, good. Now I can actually think about, now I can actually read closely. Um, Yeah, the other stuff, yeah. And within a lot of, of English novels, there's a contemplation of multiple places in a hierarchy of English society. And I think that we have that in this in this novel. Um, and it's worth thinking about mm-hmm. the, like the upstairs downstairs kind of thing, the servant class versus the upper class. Um, and then you have this character who's trying to figure out how to navigate both of those things and has, you know, feels like she's failing as she's doing it. Um, there's a question of power. Like, I think that the question of power is a very big deal in this novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, to your point, we have uh, Tim. You talked earlier about um, about this in con in the context of herself, but it's also true in kind of a more societal context. Like she's a young woman, which gives her a lack of power. She's of a lower class than her husband, which gives her a lack of power. Her husband is older than her, which gives her a lack of power. She's got this haunt. She's haunted by the ghost of the ex-wife, which takes away her power. Right. So there's this this. There's multiple forces going against our young woman. And at this point in the novel, she is not rising to it. She's not. Yeah. So when and if she does, I think we have a contemplation of what to do if you're in that kind of position of a lack Mm. of power. Mm. And and how that happens in her life, I think, is very interesting and um, worth contemplating in Mm. that context. There's a um, scene... I want to say within the first couple of chapters of the reading that we read for this week, where it's about her, um, not maid, but the person who takes care mm-hmm. of her. Because initially her you have the same, mm-hmm. the lady's maid, the one who was like, I would love to have looking maid. down at her. <laughs> and yes. yeah, exactly. Um, and then there's, then it, she ends up getting a new one and she goes to visit the girl's mother and the mother's like, Oh, she's so happy with you. She feels right at home. And it's, you know, it's very striking that the, she says the, she's the not other, like a lady at all. That's what she right, says yeah. about her mistress. It, it draws that that theme you're talking about there right out mm-hmm. in a very striking fashion. Okay, well, uh, so next week we will be on to actually shoot. What I forgot to pull up the page. Oh, it's, I've uh, got it, David. Fifteen, nineteen. Fifteen through nineteen. Okay, so we'll read fifteen through nineteen next week, and then. Uh, don't forget about the uh, other stuff we've got going on here through Goldberry Studios. We have The Daily Poem, which is back. And then, of course, we've got Tim and Heidi are doing the Plays the Thing through the Cersei Podcast Network, which we're helping produce through Goldberry Studios. So what are you guys doing next? You, you just did Act 5. So what's the, what's on the table for The Plays the Thing? We would love to get questions from those who have been following along for the Q&A episode. We have also got coming up two very exciting things. Three. I'm going to talk about all three of them. Do it. One... Um, my friend Madeline Wheeler and I did a special one-off episode on the play Cymbeline. Um, okay. Madeline is doing her PhD at the University of Southern California. She's a great classics scholar. And I wanted to bring her on to Cymbeline because there's so many classical illusions. And because it's just like a really, it's a thorny play. It's not his, it's not Shakespeare's sure. most successful play it's for a, weird play. a reason. It's really <laughs> peculiar. Um, so it's just one episode on that play, right? You just one episode on that play. Yeah. Exactly. We also are, I'm going to do an interview with a man named James Shapiro, who wrote a book called Shakespeare in a Divided America. 
And he's, I've read another one of his book, A Year in the Life of Shakespeare. He's a really top-notch Shakespeare scholar. Um, NPR, like I think a bunch of major news outlets have done uh, long interviews with him about this book, Shakespeare in a Divided America. And I will be recording an interview with him next week. And of course, Heidi, myself, and Sarah Jane Bentley are going to get together to do Romeo and Juliet, uh, which will culminate with uh, PBS's, public, PBS's broadcast of the National Theater's rendering of Romeo and Juliet, which I believe is April 23rd or 24th. Don't quote me. I'll be, I'll be posting uh, all over this. Shakespeare's birthday. Okay. I thought you were oh, going to really? say that it was going to culminate in a sword fight or something. It's going to culminate in a sword fight. Yeah. Some kind of, some kind of, uh, you know, Shakespearean ending. So yeah, check out the plays, the thing, make sure you are subscribed to that channel wherever you get podcasts. So lots of great content there. It's going to be a little more consistent. And uh, Tim, Tim and Heidi are doing yeoman's work over there. I felt like yeoman's was the right word to use when talking about a play about Shakespeare. When talking about Shakespeare. Also Mm -hmm. just when talking about Tim and Heidi. So many Um, yeoman's who are into Shakespeare. Yeah. (laughs) And apparently you win. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yo, yo, women. Yo, women. Yo, yeah. women. Yeah. Uh, then, of course, we also have our Patreon page. So head over to patreon.com slash close reads uh, because we have our Lord of the Rings content. We're well into the two towers and we'll have the next episode coming uh, on Tuesday. So in just a few days, uh, Ian and Heidi and I have been having a great time doing that. And we have um, access to some sweet show swag and also things like the live podcast that we did last week. And we'll do another one of those you know, before long, eventually we'll, we'll figure out a time to do another one of those. Cause we had a great time seeing so many faces and hearing from so many of you. So I guess that's it. Anything else either of you want to add before I sign off? Okay. Well, thank you to BAH publishing, BH publishing for sponsoring the show this month and be sure to check out Karen Swallow Pryor's series of books. Again, it's bhpublishing.com slash classics. And with that for Tim McIntosh and for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading.